Well, that's easier sung than done. Amen? I, uh, I just want to say thank you for making worshiping God a priority in your life this morning. There was uh, the first line of that first chorus we sang today caught my attention in the first service where it says that we've been waiting for this moment. Were you? Was I? Or how did we come into his house this morning? Because worship is meeting with God. And often, I think we come in here rushed and we're already focused on what's going to happen after the service, and that's just the way we are sometimes. And I'm guilty of that as well. But that really challenged me this morning, and I want to challenge us as a congregation. We should make it a priority of ours during the week to start to get ready in anticipation, excited, waiting for this moment to gather together with the body of Christ. We've had a good week. We've met individually with the Lord. But what an awesome opportunity that we get to have when we gather together as his body to worship him. And so I want to thank you for making worshiping God and meeting with, his, with him and with his body a priority in your life this morning. And I, I neglected, forgot to mention when I was uh, doing the announcements this morning, it was great to have Pastor Rick here in the early service, and he was here for the worship in the second service, but he's leaving now. And I know that he appreciates all the concern and prayers uh, that were, went up to God on his behalf this week. And, uh, you know, it's great to have a leader who doesn't just preach it, but lives it. Because I heard the conversations he was having with people as he was sitting behind me that he's still in a lot of pain. The surgery went well, but he's still in a lot of pain. But yet, in spite of the pain, he still made it a priority to come and worship, which is what we've heard from him many times from this pulpit. So praise God for a, a shepherd who not only preaches it, but lives it. So thank you for remembering him this week. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about following God. And we're going to do that by looking at the life of King Saul. At some point in almost all of our lives, if you haven't already, you will eventually prepare a resume, a personal, formal presentation of your credentials, your skills, your work experience, and your accomplishments. I remember as I was studying this week, the last resume I submitted was eight years ago to the personnel committee of Calvary Baptist Church. And uh, preparing resumes takes time. It's not just something you whip up in the afternoon and say, there you go. Because the goal when you're preparing your resume is that it will stand out from all the others. You want it to impress the person who is reviewing the resumes. Did you know that according to a study released this week by The Ladders, an online job matching service, recruiters spend an average of only six seconds reviewing resumes. Six seconds. All that work you've put into it, and it's going to pass someone's desk, and they're going to look at it within six seconds. That's not a very long time to make a significant first impression. And that's the problem with resumes. You see, resumes are limited in their ability to effectively communicate everything about a person. In an article from Forbes.com, one contributor pointed out that the one and most important thing a resume can't tell you is how a person really rolls. How does a person really conduct themselves in their day-to-day activities? You see, until you begin to work alongside someone, you don't really know who they fully are. But as you get to work with them, you discover who they really are and you see their true colors. 
Well, this morning, to bring some context to our passage, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see a new job posting coming up. There's a new position that needs to be filled within the people of God. They were looking for a king. And there was a search that was going to begin to find a suitable candidate who would be able to fill this position. You see, Samuel had been leading God's people, and he was getting old. And as he was getting old, he thought, wow, I'm not sure I'm doing a great job anymore. So he appointed his two sons to be judges over Israel, over the people of God. The problem was his sons did not follow in their dad's footsteps. Scripture tells us that rather than following in their father's way, they used the position of leadership to pursue personal gain. So the elders of Israel gathered together with Samuel and said to him, imagine this, what an encouraging meeting. You are old. Thanks. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. You see, God's people had become restless. They had become dissatisfied with God's leadership plan for their lives. Seemingly, they had forgotten how God had delivered them from all their enemies in the past. And Samuel, recognizing that even as they were journeying in chapter 7, verse 12, you see, he, he made an object lesson. After God had given them victory over the Philistines, he took a stone and he placed it between Mizpah and Shen. And he named it Ebenezer, saying, People, don't forget, thus far the Lord has helped us. But it didn't seem to matter. So to say Samuel was disappointed with the request for a king is an understatement. Because number one, it was a personal shot at his leadership. If he was doing a great job, they wouldn't have asked for a king. So number one, it's a personal shot at his leadership. But the Lord, listen to this, spoke to Samuel. And he said, Samuel, it's not you that they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. And the Lord said to Samuel, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them, listen to this, will claim as his rights. Isn't that interesting? In a study that we're doing about God's rights over our rights, the warning that he told Samuel to give the people, fine, you're requesting a king, but just be warned. Be weary because you will be amazed at what he will claim as his rights. So in chapter 8, verse 10 through 18, Samuel does what the Lord directed him to do. He warns the people of the consequences of replacing Yahweh, their king, with an earthly king. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And the Lord told Samuel to graciously give them what they want. Before we're too hard on the people of God, let's remind ourselves that their actions reveal the tendency of the human heart to always seek safety and security in things other than God. Governments, bank accounts, human relationships, all other kinds of things that will never ultimately deliver you or give you security. Brothers and sisters, true security can only be found in God and in his king, Jesus. So the search is on. 
and a son of a wealthy Benjamite named Kish rises to the top of the pile, and his name is Saul. And we learn very quickly that outwardly, Saul had some impressive credentials. In chapter 9, verse 2 of 1 Samuel, this is how he's described, as a handsome young man. That was not how I introduced myself to the chairman of the board when I sent my resume here. A handsome young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. In addition to being good looking, although this was not God's plan for his people, God reveals that he was going to be willing to graciously equip Samuel, Saul, to do the job. And you can read in chapter 10, verse 2 through 10, that God reassured Saul by fulfilling in his life a number of signs, affirmation that, Saul, you're the man for the job. Affirmation is so important when you're embarking on a new adventure. And I remember when I sat in the back section of this church on a Sunday, going back now, nine years probably, when Benji Davidassin was speaking at Missions Conference, And I knew the Lord was asking me to surrender to be available to full-time ministry. And I said, Lord, I give up the fight. I'm available. But one thing I ask, I need to know this is from you through affirmation from the leadership of this church that what you are saying you see in me, they also see in me. That was on Sunday. Wednesday, I had lunch with Scott Martin. And Scott Martin started off our lunch by saying, just so you know, the pastors have been praying. The leadership has been noticing. Have you ever considered full-time ministry? Affirmation. It helps you to become so confident, not in yourself, but in what God is saying he will do through you. And so in chapter 10, verse 6, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon Saul, and he will be changed into a different person. So that what? He can be confident to do whatever his hand finds to do. Why? For God is with him. And later in chapter 11, verse 10, we see that fulfilled. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. So drastically was the change in his behavior that those who formerly knew him said, What is that that has happened to the son of Kish? Wouldn't that be an awesome testimony if our neighbors started to say that of us? What in the world has happened to that guy. Impressive credentials, recognized and affirmed by leadership, powerfully equipped to be successful. Therefore, it should not be a surprise if you go to chapter 14, verses 47 to 48, where it says about his accomplishments. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them, He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. You see, outwardly, Saul was an impressive person. But remember what the author said of that article. The one thing a resume cannot do is it cannot tell you or show you how a person really rolls. You need firsthand interaction to be able to find out if that what is on paper truly matches who they are. So to get a glimpse into how Saul rolled as king, we're going to take a closer look at his actions on the job as king and see if there are any red flags. I have given a number of references for people. And one of the last questions usually the person will ask me before they hang up, they'll say, thanks for all that you have helped us to understand about this individual. Before we end this conversation, are there any red flags? 
that we should be aware of before we proceed with this individual. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go on the job, watch Saul in action as king, and see if we can identify some red flags. Will you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people. So listen now to the message of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and he set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kerites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the, with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers to sheep, took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Saul's assignment came to him through Samuel as a message from the Lord. He was presented with this incredible opportunity to demonstrate his willingness to carry out his responsibilities as the king over God's people. Go and strike the Amalekites and destroy them completely. Who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites obviously were enemies of God 
who the scripture tells us had attacked his people on their way out of Egypt as they were making their way to Mount Sinai. In fact, the Amalekites tried to prevent God's people from getting to Mount Sinai where they would enter into covenant with the Lord and become his covenant people. So you see, they were not just another, another heathen people group. They were bent on destroying Israel. They were bent on destroying God's people. So is it any wonder that in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, the Lord vowed he would erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven? And here in our text today, we find Saul being chosen as an instrument in the Lord's hand to bring his judgment on Amalek, fully fulfilling his vow. And we see Saul's response. He responds promptly, and he responds immediately, and he assembles this incredible army of foot soldiers. And before he attacks, he goes to another people group. How many of you knew about the Kenites before this text? I didn't know about the Kenites. But it's interesting. He goes to this people group, the Kenites, who were living in the same territory as the Amalekites, but there was a difference. These people showed favor, the scripture says, to all the Israelites when they were coming out of Egypt. And Saul gives them a heads up and he says, hey guys, you need to make your way out of this area because we are about to ambush the Amalekites. This is really important for us to understand. This act of grace clearly points to the fact that this war was not about territorial expansion in God's eyes. Because for us in the modern day, when we read what God was asking them, we're like, whoa, that's pretty severe. Like, leave nothing, destroy everything, including the donkeys. Like, nothing should be left. But you need to understand, this was not about a territorial expansion. This was about Yahweh, God, waging war against a people that had set themselves up against his people. That's why God instructed them to totally destroy everything. God was going to use his people under the leadership of Saul to, as an instrument of his judgment on this wicked and utterly sinful culture. God's instructions to destroy everything were because he, did, he wanted to eliminate anything that could potentially become a temptation and prevent his people from worshiping him and living him living for him as his chosen people. So you need to understand that. This is not a territorial expansion war. This is Yahweh defending his name and his people. And so in verse 7, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. So far, so good. Saul's doing a great job. His victory was extensive. However, in the first part of verse 8, we see our first red flag. What does the scripture say? He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And this brings us to the first of a few lessons that I want us to pull out as we're on the job with Saul today. First of all, brothers and sisters, God is not impressed simply with good starts. It's how we run and finish the race that matters to him. God is not impressed simply with good starts. Now, I want to establish something and be very clear with us this morning. None of us have a good start. It is only by God's grace that we are saved through faith, and this faith was not from ourselves. It is the gift of God that we were able to even enter the race as followers of Jesus Christ. 
You see, all followers of Christ start their race, run their race, and finish their race by the grace of God. But there's a key component in the Great Commission that Jesus gave his disciples. Jesus told them to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and then to baptize those who he saves in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's this third component. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. You see, obeying his commands by his grace and through his strength is how we run and finish the race well. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Therefore, don't focus on the start only. Run in such a way as to win the prize. He communicates the same concern to the churches in Galatia when he writes to them in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. Again, you were running such a good race. You had a good start. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? See, up to this point, Saul had done what God had asked him to do. But then here, in verses 8 through 10, we see in Saul an unwillingness to completely and fully obey the commands of Christ. Incomplete obedience has far-reaching effects. We saw that last week in the study of Achan. As a result of Saul's half-hearted obedience in this passage, over five centuries later, a descendant of King Agag named Haman tried to exterminate the Jewish race. Think about your journey as a follower of Jesus Christ. Are there commands and instructions of God that at one time in your life you were so passionate about? You were so eager to obey God and follow him wholeheartedly. But have you, as you have run the race longer, have you become desensitized? And have you begun to not take some of those same commands as seriously as you did at the start? I didn't have an example for you this morning until I was shaving my face this morning, which is the only thing I shave. I don't shave my legs or anything else, so I don't know why I said that, but that's what came to my mind. So as I was shaving this morning, the Lord said to me, he prompted me with this thought, I am concerned as a dad, and I'm concerned as a follower of Jesus Christ, that we have become desensitized to the misuse of God's name in our culture, church and secular. I'm concerned as a young dad who's not equipped to understand social media and all that other stuff, but I'm concerned when I see Christians gathering together, watching YouTube videos, which are funny and which are hilarious, but weaved in them is the name of God misused. Rude language, swearing, and yet we seem to be able to uncomfortably sit and watch the video. I'm concerned. At the start of the race, that probably would have really bothered us. At the start of the race, we probably, we probably would have been a little bit more careful about what we're willing to watch and allow to fill our minds. Can I remind you in light of that, God's standards? See, he hasn't lowered his standards. We've lowered our standards. Exodus 20 verse 7 says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We always remember that part, but what caught me this morning was the second part. It says, For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. 
There should not be obscenity, foolish talk, talk or coarse joking, which are out of place. I've been guilty of that. Brothers and sisters, this is the filter we need to work through. This is the app that we need to use every time we're about to engage a video on YouTube. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. May God help us to understand that what really was passionate about following the Lord for us at the start of the race still needs to be important halfway, still needs to be important right to the end. Because God is not impressed with good starts. It's how we run and finish the race that matter to him. Secondly, God is not impressed when we tweak his commands. His commands and instructions are not up for debate. They are to be followed. When God instructed Saul to destroy everything and spare nothing, he meant everything and nothing. You see, from the beginning, the enemy of our souls has tempted people to question and tweak God's word. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Satan, the deceiver, clothed as a serpent, came to Eve and said, Did God really say? Verse 8 and 9, we find Saul tweaking the Lord's commands. Not only in addition to sparing Agag, Saul and his army spared the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Isn't it interesting how they began to decide what was good, what was despised, and what was weak? In light of the fact that God had already established in his commands to them that nothing associated with the Amalekites was good. But here we see Saul and the leaders of his army determining what is good, what is despised, and what is weak. When we begin to tweak God's word, what we're actually doing, and you need to understand this, and I need to understand this, what we're actually doing when we tweak God's word is we're replacing his authority with our opinion. That's what we're doing. So rather than obeying what God has already determined to us through his revealed word is good and despised, we think we have the right to determine those things when we don't. It's not that Saul ignored all of God's commands. He just chose not to completely obey all of his commands. And if you take time to read the whole story of the reign of Saul from chapter 9 to the end of chapter 15, you will see this pattern reoccurring in Saul's leadership. Half-hearted obedience. Half-hearted obedience. Rather than waiting on the Lord for his instructions for what he knows he's supposed to do, he forces the issue. Or rather than not carrying out everything he's supposed to do, he carries out some of it. Half-hearted obedience, which in God's eyes amounts to disobedience. Repeatedly, we see him not taking God's word seriously. Following the Lord's commands were not his highest priority. And when, this is key, please listen to this, and when in a tight spot, other factors outweigh his obligation and loyalty as king, small k, to the great king, capital K. It's in those tight spots of life where people really begin to understand who we are. It's in those tight spots of life where the quality of our character is revealed. And I'm going to give you a very real life 
example that happened a week and a half ago. Jason, myself, and April, my youngest daughter, and my mom, went up to the farm to hunt for the week. Now Jason, is, this is his fourth year hunting, and he hasn't shot a deer yet, but he has worked really hard at learning how to be a successful hunter. And for all of you who don't hunt, you're gonna ask Jan Stacy or his son-in-law, it's not like you just go in the woods and you go, oh, that was easy. No, it's really hard to shoot the deer because they have an incredible sense of smell. And if you haven't done it lately, you can just do this and realize we have a terrible smell. And the deer can sense you from a long, long way away. And so it's actually really hard to have all the elements work together where it didn't see you and you saw it and venison in the freezer. So Jason has been working hard at this. He is so excited to be able to harvest his first deer. And he sat so long in the woods and he did all the chases. He heard some deers running, never got a chance to see them though. And then this one morning we got together with the, with the gang that we hunt with and we were getting ready to go do a chase on my neighbor's property and his son said to us, hey guys, my dad has asked us that this morning we only shoot horns. So in other words, don't shoot the does. We can only shoot bucks. And we went, well, that's kind of too bad because we didn't have much meat on the pole yet. And we thought, why would he say that? We've got doe tags. Like, it's not like we're out of doe tags. And so everyone was kind of frustrated that, well, this is kind of a waste of time. Then why not go somewhere where we can hunt both bucks and does? But anyway, we did the chase. And I went down this ravine, down into a low spot, and they always had Jason next to me. I don't know why, because I don't like gutting deers either, so he was next to me up here. The chasers went through, we heard the dogs barking, and eventually they were out of ear sound. They were gone. Nothing had come. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a snow flurry came. Crazy snow flurry, it was blue sky, and all of a sudden I'm sitting and go, what the world's going on? So I said, well, I'm gonna go up and see Jason, make sure he's doing okay. So I walk up to the four-wheeler, Jason comes out of the bush, and he looks kind of discouraged, and he's hunted hard all week. He says, Dad, you're not gonna believe it. I said, what? He said, I knew this was gonna happen. As soon as that snow flurry came, out of nowhere, the dogs and the chasers had already gone through, out comes this beautiful, big, mature doe stands broadside to him, 15 yards. <laughs> Nothing between him and this deer. But we're only shooting horns. And he said, Dad, you know what? It's so bad I had to kick dirt to get the thing to get going. <laughs> All I did is I, I was speechless because I know how hard it is to hunt and I, I just gave him a big hug and I said, you know what, Jason, God was testing your character today. He was testing your character and I said, son, character is far better than venison in the freezer. The guys started to come out from the woods on their four-wheeler and they all came out and they started to hear the story and they were all so ticked and they were like starting to justify, well, that's ridiculous. Jason, you're more than a man than I am. These are all unbelievers that we hunt with. They said, you're more of a man than I am. I would have shot the thing. He said, that's crazy. And they began to justify why no one would have had a problem if Jason had shot it because actually it's kind of our policy that if, if your child comes or your wife's hunting and someone hasn't shot a deer, whatever comes out, shoot it, and we'll give our tag for it. And so people were starting to justify. Then the owner of the property came out and said, what's all the talk? Well, here's what happened. You won't believe it. A doe came out in front of Jason and he didn't shoot the thing. And the owner said, well, had I known Jason, I would have given him permission to shoot it. 
Here's the lesson, though. He didn't because he took what was told to him seriously. And that pleased his father's heart because in a tight spot, he chose to obey what he was told. God's word must occupy first place in our lives. And he expects us to take it seriously. Our obedience to God is not to be trimmed down to our liking. And we are not to assume that God can be manipulated. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. It does not impress God when we tweak his commands. They are not up for debate. They are to be followed. So, so the Lord speaks to Samuel in response to Saul's disobedience in verses 10 and 11, and he says, I regret I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Saul had become self-centered, self-willed, and disobedient to the things of God. And do you notice the end of verse 11? Saul's actions angered Samuel and grieved him so much that he cried out to the Lord all that night. All means all. It's an interesting part of the story. Samuel, I really respect him. Because he wasn't angry at God. He was angry at Saul that was given this incredible opportunity, equipped to do it, and yet he couldn't follow through wholeheartedly with all of the commands of God. But then do you notice what he, do, what he does? He doesn't just get angry at him. What does he do? He calls out on Saul's behalf all night. We all have family members. We all have friends that are walking in disobedience with God, that are choosing to not make his commands the highest priority in their life. We need to be grieved by that. And we need to spend time on our knees calling out to God on their behalf. So Saul wakes up the next morning. And, he, and Samuel wakes up and he's going to find Saul. But when he can't find him, he's informed. Again, here, another red flag. Saul is so arrogant. He goes out to find him and people say, oh, he's gone to Carmel. And by the way, there, he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Arrogance. Saul was now taking credit for the victory that God had given his people. In his mind, the battle against Amalek ceased being the Lord's battle and had become his own battle. What did the people ask for way back, chapter 8? We want a king just like all the other nations. That's exactly what God gave them. Because in those days when one nation defeated another nation, they would take the leader of the defeated nation and display him and the king of the victorious nation would then set up a monument to himself. They got exactly what they were asking for. And Saul set up this monument of self-worship, again, indicating his spiritual weakness. Can I say this to you this morning? Prolonged seasons of sinful disobedience are often so closely linked when we replace God 
with someone or something else as the center of our worship. Prolonged seasons of disobedience are very closely linked when we replace God with someone, including ourselves, or something else as the center of our worship. How does God feel about this? Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Brothers and sisters, God will not look with indifference on our transfer of worship that is due him when we give it to someone else or something else. He will not look upon that lightly. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, he says, do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What's the application? We must daily refresh ourselves with the knowledge and understanding of God's words and commands to us so that we will not tweak them. Joshua 1.8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. That's one of the most lasting impressions that Pastor Chan had on my life when he was here with us at Missions Conference. That man meditates on the Word of God. Day and night. Why? Is that important? So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Too often, I'm afraid, we are careless to do everything written in it because we haven't spent time in it. God is not impressed when we tweak his commands. They are not up for debate. They are to be followed. Third lesson, God is not impressed when we try to spiritualize our sin. Verse 13 to 23 is such an an interesting part of the story. Samuel finally catches up with Saul, and we, we see this kind of a humorous but such a sad dialogue between the two of them. Saul sees Samuel coming, and he says to Samuel, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel on his head is going, Hmm, God told me that he regrets making you king, because you turned away from him and have not carried out his instructions. So you have him coming to Samuel, speaking all spiritually, going, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions, completely contradicting God's version. You see, sin will make us say and do foolish things. Saul has so deceived himself that he has no clue about how unsuccessful he has actually been in accomplishing the mission that God sent him out to do. I remember saying that with some of my kids because I remember how I was when I was young. I thought you could get away with lying. I was a really good liar. And I see some of that in my kids and I remember saying to them, stop lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Be honest about what you've done. Don't deceive yourself. Here we see him justifying his actions by claiming he had good spiritual intentions. And you know what I love about God? He's so gracious that he will expose our sin, not to embarrass us, but he longs for us to repent and to turn away from our wicked ways. He's so gracious. And so here in this amazing scene where Saul's walking up and says, the Lord bless you. I have completed the instructions that the Lord gave me. Bah, bah. Moo, moo. Can you imagine how he must have felt? Think about it. God is exposing his sins through the noises of his creation. 
And I love Samuel's reaction. What then is the bleating of the sheep in my ears? And what is the lowing of the cattle that I hear? But you know what? Saul gets right back into how he spiritually is trying to justify his sin. And he says to them, oh, 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 the soldiers brought them. Spared the best to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Interesting transition. But we totally destroyed the rest. High five, Samuel. Justifying his actions, claiming he had good spiritual intentions, and threw that another red flag. He never accepts or admits the guilt guilt of his own sin. Transfers that, starts blaming other people. His disobedience led him to the point where he could no longer claim God as his God. How sad. It became so clear that deep down Saul's heart, even though outwardly he was so impressive, even though he had been given every opportunity to be successful, his heart was not right with the Lord. And finally, in the midst of him saying, the Lord bless you, I've completed all that God has instructed me. Just ignore the noises of the animal behind me because we've brought the best so that we can sacrifice to your God. Samuel says, enough! Stop talking! Be quiet! What you have to say, no matter how spiritual it may sound, does not carry any weight because of your actions. What matters, Saul, is what the Lord says. And this is what he told me last night. Samuel, grieving for the disobedience of his friend, tries to reorientate Saul to whose words really matter. And so in verses 17 to 19, he takes him right back to the beginning of when God called him and when he anointed him and when he equipped him. Verse 20 and 21 even after, Saul, even after Samuel had led him through a review of the mistakes he's made, we see in Saul this continual attitude of trying to spiritually justify his sin rather than just confess it and repent. As one author said, God is not interested in displays of outward piety that are used as a cover for disobedience. I pray for myself. I pray for us as a church that none of us are here today worshiping God as some way to justify how we're actually living during the week. That doesn't impress God. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. I'm afraid that a lot of times we think God can be mocked. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man or a woman reaps what they sow. God is not impressed when we spiritualize our sin. And in verse 22 and 23, Samuel wraps up his discourse of this portion with Saul, reminding them, Saul, this is what the Lord is really impressed with. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. You see, Samuel is not suggesting here that sacrifice is unimportant, but it is acceptable only when brought with an obedience and devotion to the Lord. Listen to what Psalm 51 verse 16 says, 
You do not delight in sacrifice, so I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system was never intended to function in place of living a life of obedience, but rather it was to be an expression of that. Why are you here today? Are you here today because of an expression of your love and obedience to God? Just as works without faith count for little with God, so claims of faith that do not issue or come with active obedience are meaningless. Total, wholehearted obedience is what impresses the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 12, he says to his people, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord and to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the prayer we need to be praying for our kids. Too often we get focused on the career. If we focus on praying that they will fear God, walk in obedience to him, they'll love him and serve him, you will just simply get to see God's plan unfold in their lives. And he says, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today. You see, unfortunately, Saul thought that with all your heart was optional. Choosing rather to pick what he thought would impress God. Self-regulating what and who to listen to and what to obey. And what did God say this kind of living is when we do that? Rebellion. The opposite of obedience is rebellion. And God takes this so seriously that he equates it in this text on the same level as witchcraft. I did not think of my disobedience this week as witchcraft. But in God's eyes, disobedience in this text is equated with witchcraft. Which is interesting because if you go to chapter 28, verse 3 and 9, Saul, while he was reigning, actually talked against and dealt very seriously with people who were engaged in witchcraft and divination. So do you see the irony here? While he's doing this as a king, God's saying, buddy, you're missing the whole point. Because how you're living with me is the same as what those people are doing. Rebellion and arrogance. The opposite of humility, the Bible says, is like the evil of idolatry. So as a result of how Saul rolled, how he conducted himself as king, He had a good start, but he did not run obediently. Rather, he tweaked God's commands to his liking. And instead of admitting guilt and confessing, he would try to spiritualize and justify his actions. As a result of that, we read at the end of verse 23, the just cause of his dismissal. You have rejected the word of the Lord. Therefore, he has rejected you as king. And that is God's right. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It's not easy. But I'm so grateful for it. Because your word helps us to understand how we are to live with you in relationship. And Father, I thank you for the lessons that you have taught us today through the life of Saul. 
And Lord, I pray that you would examine our hearts. I pray that you would reveal in us where we are totally lying to ourselves and we will come clean with you. God, I pray that as we sing this song together in closing, that we really will mean what we say, that what we sing will be matched in what our neighbors, our spouse, our family, our coworkers see roll out in our lives in everyday real life situations. Oh God, be merciful to us and help us by your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We are not our own. We have been bought with a high, costly price. You know, there's a lot of talk right now south of us about what the new commander-in-chief is going to expect. What's the direction? In light of what we have just sung and in light of what I have just read to you, here is what our commander-in-chief expects. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be on mission with me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Oh, that God would help us to become accurate reflection of his chosen people. We will not be satisfied simply with good starts, but we will be also as equally excited about running and finishing the race well. May we be a church that does not tweak God's commands because they're not up for debate. They're to be followed. And may we learn to confess and repent rather than try to spiritualize our sin. Total, wholehearted obedience to the Lord is what will impress him. By his grace and through whose power, let us go and reflect his kingdom in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.